Welcome to Hauser Community Church Online. Let's join Pastor as the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and unpacks the Word of God for us. After the message, we'll tell you how to contact us. Gracious and merciful God, you're slow to anger and you're great in power, rich in mercy to all who call upon you. Help us now in the name of Christ to ask that we may have and to seek that we may find. We desire, Heavenly Father, to bring you glory and honor and praise in, in everything that we do. God, we ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us of our sins. We so often fail to look in your direction, look to you for direction, look to you for help, look to you for fulfillment, look to you for answers. We so often look to ourselves and we so often look to something else and someone else and some other authority and there's none before you. We ask that you would forgive us for looking elsewhere, forgive us for grumbling against the body of Christ, Lord. So often we're found guilty attacking our own selves, attacking the blood-bought bride of Christ. And we need your help, Lord. We need your forgiveness. Forgive us for not loving our neighbors as ourselves. But God, we pray these things with confidence, knowing that in, in Christ and on the cross, you do forgive us. We don't need to live in shame. We don't need to live in guilt. We are forgiven. We're being cleansed from unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. You, you promise us that. We thank you. We want to reflect Christ. Lord, we lift up the many who have COVID right now. We ask for healing. We ask for strength. We ask for wisdom. Lord, give them um, endurance. Lord, we, we ask that you would stop the spread of the virus soon. I ask that you would keep your people from attacking each other and supporting each other instead. Lord, we ask that you would bring your people together in Christian love. We need the body of Christ now more than, I don't want to say ever, but we need the body of Christ now, and we can feel that. Lord, we ask that you would bring healing to those recovering from surgeries, those going into surgeries, those recovering from other sicknesses. We, we ask for your mercy, Lord. We thank you because you are a merciful God. We lift before you the Afghan nation. Grant your mercy to the innocent, Lord, and, and we ask for a humbling of those who are evil. We ask for your justice, but we also ask that your gospel would explode there that people would see their need for you. Give strength to the missionaries who are there. They're stuck there, but praise God, they're stuck there because they have the only good news that that people can hear. 
Lord, we pray for our own nation. Day by day, it feels like the divide grows deeper and deeper. Lord, we trust. Our trust is not in man. It's, it's not in the government. It's not in the rule of man. It's in your sovereign rule. And we're confident in your sovereignty. May you humble the proud and may you alone be glorified, God. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in a mighty way this morning. You'd give us ears to hear. I pray we don't look at this passage as something that we've heard a hundred times that we believe only, um, that we would hear it with fresh ears, that we would be convicted of sin, but also see the immeasurable grace of God. Lord, if there are any who are lost, would you save them this morning? If there are any who are weary, revive them. Put your people on mission this morning, God. Lord, I ask for your help. I'm weak. My body's weak. But I know that your word is strong. Help me to proclaim the cross faithfully. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, kiddos, you are released. Everyone else, if you will, turn your Bibles to Luke, if you're not already there, and we will look at the crucifixion of Christ this morning. Well, good morning, church. It is very good to be back. I would ask that you would continue to pray for me. I am still pretty weak, so if I pass out up here, someone just come on up and finish out for me. This morning, we look at the most horrific act humanity could ever commit. We look at the hardest passage to read, but at the same time, as we look at this passage, we see the most gracious act, the most gracious act of love God could ever accomplish for his people. Here we see the love of God on full display. Here we see Christ chooses not to save himself so that he could choose to save us. The Lord of all creation chose to become man. He chose to put on flesh. He he chose to pay for sin. He chose to reverse the curse of death so that we could once again eat from the tree of life. But hear me, the message of the cross is not just for the unbeliever. We, as the people of God, need to hear the gospel every single day. We need to preach the gospel to each other every single day, and we need it preached to us every single day. Because when I forget that I'm in Christ, I start to attempting to live the Christian life in my own power, and I fail every time. And when I forget who I am in Christ, I start looking to other people to fulfill me and to recognize me and to say, um, I'm worthy. When I forget who I am in Christ, I start living in guilt and shame. 
So today we are going to follow Jesus up the hill, up the hill to his death, up to the, the, up the Via Della Rosa, up to the place called the Skull. And Jesus is going to reveal to us why we need a Savior. And we might think, yeah, I know why I need a Savior, Greg. I've been in church my whole life, but I want you to see why you need a Savior every day. You don't get over your need for needing a Savior. So look at the text with me, Luke 23, starting in verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, there's one around you. I, I want you to see the words of our Lord. Starting in verse 26. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And, and there followed with him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed fall on us. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. I believe when we read this, when we get into this first part, and we see Jesus going up the hill, and, and, and we see Simon pulled um, in to carry the cross for him, and we see the women following behind, and they're lamenting for him, we, we long to help Jesus. We long to help carry the cross. We long to be there. We say, Lord, I want to carry your cross. I want to distract the crowd for you so that you can get out of here. I, we want to, to weep and mourn over the injustice along with the crowds and, and, and cry out, this is not fair. This is unjust. The Son of God is, is before us. He did nothing wrong. But we need Jesus to turn to us here and teach us. We need him to turn and say, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, because Jesus is not the one that needs help here. We are. Jesus is not the one that needs rescuing here. We do. We're the ones that were in active rebellion against God. Even after we get this and we understand, like, I get it. We were in active rebellion. I understand that we need um, a Savior. We fall into times when we forget it. We want to help Jesus get our own lives together. 
We want to help Jesus get our marriage together. We want to help Jesus get our addiction in check. We want to help Jesus get the church together and go the direction that we, he wants it to go. We want to help. But listen, we need Jesus to do the impossible in us. He's God. We're not. We get in trouble when we try to take the reins. We see here, he says, behold, the days are coming when they say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. This is a prophecy of judgment. It's fulfilled about 40 years after Jesus says it, when, when Rome comes and ransacks Jerusalem in 70 AD. We, we looked at that um, not too long ago. The Jewish people, they see the Messiah. He's right there in front of them. They reject him. They turn to Rome to get rid of this, this troublemaker, Jesus. And then Rome turns on them and ransacks them. Fatally strikes them. Listen, you you need to hear that if you rely on anything, anything other than the blood-bought promises of Jesus Christ, you'll be sorely disappointed. The coming wrath is, is so horrific, Jesus says, that barrenness, not being able to have children, which is normally seen as a curse, will be seen as a blessing. And at the final return of Christ, we see the same thing happening in Revelation. It says the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And Jesus amplifies this message in in verse 31, and he says this weird thing, and if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? He's using this very common illustration If you've ever cleared any land, if you've ever cleared any property, if you've ever um, done anything with green wood, you understand that it doesn't light off right away. It's, It's hard to burn. It'll burn if you get the fire hot enough. But dry wood, it lights off with no problem. It's easy to burn. But Jesus is saying, I'm the green wood. I'm the righteous one. And, and if they do this, if God's judgment is poured out on me on the cross, if, if Rome is used to, um, through God's perfect providence, to, to judge the sin of man on the cross, on the Son of God who's perfect, then the judgment coming against those who reject his Son is certain. If the green wood, the righteous son of God, has to experience the wrath of God, those who reject the son of God will certainly have to experience the wrath of God. We see this 
in John the Baptist as he's proclaiming. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus says the same thing later. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And Luke continues on with the narrative in verse 32. He says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. They came to a place that's called the skull, and there they crucified him, Jesus, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. It's not an accident, I don't think, that Luke pans to the criminals here. I think he's saying, he's making a point, we're not innocent. The Son of God is the innocent one. And as we watch the narrative unfold, we see the, re- the story of redemption unfolding right before our eyes. We see the Son of God and two criminals on each side, and he's paying for their sin. Jesus is headed up to the place called the skull, and he reaches the top, and they nail him to this cross. They nail him in between two criminals, two guilty, one innocent. And we're on the top of the place called the skull with him, a place of certain death, a place where, where sin is paid for, where the Romans would, would crucify people. But instead of being nailed next to Jesus... We get to walk back down because the Son of God says, I will take that for you. He, I will die in your place. I will transfer your guilt onto me. You will be innocent. Your debt will be wiped away. You will be forgiven. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we need a a savior because we couldn't do that. We need a savior because we were ignorant of our sin. Verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then they cast lots to divide his garments. The soldiers back in 22, verse 63, they're they're ignorant. When the men were holding Jesus in custody, they were mocking him as they beat him. They were ignorant that they were blaspheming and beating the Son of God. The chief priests and the scribes were ignorant that they had placed the Messiah on trial. Pilate was ignorant that he stood before the actual king of the Jews and the king of all creation. Herod was ignorant that God was in his presence as he tried to get him to dance like a fool. The crowds were ignorant as they cried out, crucify him. This criminal that's next to him was ignorant as he cries out, save yourself and save us if you're the Christ. But all that comes out of Jesus' mouth is, Father, forgive them. 
They don't know what they're doing. It's not destroy my enemy. It's not cast them down, they've rejected me. It's not give them what they deserve. It's not save me from this mess. It is forgive them, they have no idea. They, they're blinded by sin and Satan. They have no idea I am your son. They have no idea you sent me down to die for their sin. They have no idea that I'm doing this for them. Do you see the grace of God in this passage? Can you feel his mercy penetrating your heart that you should have been there? Can you feel the weight of his love that you should have been there? And he said, no. I will be there for you. You see, Jesus, he cannot, could not save himself. And I'm not saying he was incapable. That's what those in the passage are saying. The leaders in verse 35 are they're scoffing after him. The leaders scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. He's the Christ of God, this chosen one. The soldiers continue to mock him, saying, they give him sour wine, and they say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. They slap an inscription over his head, this is the king of the Jews. The criminal right next to him, save yourself and us if you're the Christ. You see, Jesus isn't incapable, though. He reminds Peter, when he's being arrested, he he tells Peter, do you think I can appeal to my father and at once he'll send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled? Jesus had authority to cast out demons. Jesus had the authority to heal the sick. He had the authority to raise the dead, to walk on water, to speak and calm a storm to turn water into wine, to feed thousands by turning a snack into a feast. Do you not think that he could save himself from the cross? He couldn't come down from the cross because scripture had to be fulfilled. And he was the only one that could do it. He couldn't come down from the cross because the plan of redemption had to be fulfilled and he was the only one that could do it. He stayed on the cross to crush Satan's head as he promised he would do in Genesis 3.15. He stayed to destroy the works of the devil. He stayed to bind the strong man. He stayed so that Satan could no longer deceive the nations. He stayed so that he could save his people from their sins. This is his name when he's being born she will bear a son and you will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. If he came down from the cross, there'd be no forgiveness of sin. Only debt we could never pay. He could not come down from the cross because of his love for his people. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. That means, the word propitiation means he uh, absorbed all of God's wrath for us. A love so deep that he would satisfy the wrath of God by dying in our place and there's no more left for us. There's no longer any wrath for those who turn to Jesus Christ in faith. There's only forgiveness, mercy, grace. We're free for all eternity. Never have to pay for our sin. He could not come down from the cross because he had to become the perfect high priest. We see in Hebrews, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin." He makes the final sacrifice. He, he intercedes. He prays for us. This means as Christians, when we sin and we receive Jesus' sacrifice by faith, we can return to him over and over, not in shame, not in guilt, not, not I need to do this so that you accept me, but in confidence that he has paid for my sin on the cross and he is, he is interceding for me. His blood has covered all of my sin, past, present, and future. He couldn't come down to the cross because he was ushering in the new covenant. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already is ready to vanish. I could preach on those verses for two years, like I have been in Luke. I won't. He brings us into the new covenant. He, he gives us a new heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, instead of trying to earn your way into heaven... You have this heart that desires to follow Jesus and you have this spirit moving you in faith toward holiness, not perfectly, 
because we're still wrestling with the flesh, but he is moving us in that direction. He couldn't come down from the cross because he desired to bring glory to the Father. He couldn't come down from the cross because he became the firstborn of the dead. It says in Romans, for if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, For all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. He couldn't come down from the cross because he was our example in suffering and service. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours. It is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means he didn't use being God to his advantage. Instead, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He became man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. So I want to ask you three little questions. Look at verse 40. I'll let the guy dying right next to Christ ask. The other criminal rebukes the one who just mocked Christ, saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? God created us, and therefore we're accountable to God. And and this criminal, he's railing at Jesus. He's saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us, as if he deserves salvation as if he deserves deliverance from his crimes, even though he's guilty. I fear too many have this same problem, thinking they deserve salvation as if it's some right for humanity. But it's not. Our, our just punishment is death. We, in sin, have turned our backs on God. But we make salvation some right when we say, when we think, I'm going to say some of these magic words, I'm going to pray this prayer, and God is obligated to save me no matter what. And that's not fearing God, that's using God, like this criminal is doing here on the cross. One pastor preached, um, he said, before we can see the cross as something done for us, leading to our salvation, we need to see it as something done by us. Before we come to the cross for forgiveness, we need to understand our offense and sin is rejecting the one true God, and sin is attempting to put yourself in his place. Our coming to the cross should not be, God, you owe me salvation, because I said the right thing. It should be, have mercy on me, a sinner, by the blood of Jesus Christ spilled for me. 
second question is, have you admitted your guilt? Look at verse 40, the second part. He says, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Our guilt makes us incapable of earning salvation. Until you understand you're guilty, you never understand salvation. Until you understand the bad news, you can't hear the good news. The criminal here does not acknowledge his guilt. He just wants the benefit of this so-called Messiah to get off of the cross. That's all he wants. He wants to get out of torture. He wants to get away from suffering. And if that's all you want in Christ, you're no different than the criminal here. We have to see, I deserve death because I'm guilty of sin. But this other criminal there, he recognizes his guilt and he recognizes Jesus' innocence. And he cries out, not, hey, get me off this cross, but have mercy on me. When you get to your kingdom, have mercy on me. He's not asking for, he doesn't, he knows he doesn't deserve deliverance. We need to see the difference. One demands God do something. The other asks for mercy. One bows before the holy God. The other exalts himself in pride. One knows his need for the Savior. The other just wants the benefits. Have you asked for mercy? Verse 42, excuse me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Have you seen your guilt and turned to Jesus? Do you understand your guilt? Believer, do you understand you've been cleared of your guilt? If you don't know Jesus this morning, cry out to him and he will save you. He does not turn anyone away. Cry out for mercy and you will hear, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. We see in Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Christian, if you've turned your back on Christ, if you've backslidden, if you've cheapened his sacrifice, cry out for mercy and receive it. Remember who you are. Remember what he's done. And how do you receive mercy? Jesus opens the way to holiness. Look at the text. It was now the sixth hour and it was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what, he had, what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled from the spectacle, when they saw what had happened, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. 
The first way he opens the way to holiness is he does away with sacrifice. Before this curtain is a separation between the inner court and the most holy place. Only the high priest could go in there. Only the high priest could make atonement for sin for the people of Israel. But now Jesus has done away with that separation between you and forgiveness, between you and the mercy seat, between you and standing in the presence of the holy God, uh, between you and being holy. He makes you holy. You can now be in the presence of God. You no longer have to live in guilt. You no longer have to live in shame. The things that keep you from being holy are gone. You no longer have to try and work your way into heaven. In Christ, you're holy, you're righteous, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're adopted, you're indwelled by the Spirit, you're being sanctified. Like He makes you holy. And as you strive to live Christ-like, you, are, you, are, you don't have to have the gloom of guilt over your head all the time. You return to the cross and you hear every single time, not guilty. Forgiven. Jesus dies as the innocent lamb. Certainly, even the centurion who probably nailed the nails into Jesus' hand, probably spit on him, probably mocked him, sees certainly this man was innocent. And he takes his innocence and he places it on you. And he takes your guilt and places it on himself. You're free from trying to have to earn innocence. You're free from trying to clear your guilt and shame. It is gone. Believe it. Live as one set free. And he shows us the kingdom. We see Joseph, this Jew, he's from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. This means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a good and righteous man. He didn't consent to the actions, the decision and the actions to, to crucify Jesus, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. We see in the Matthew account that, that Joseph, even though he's a Pharisee or a Sadducee, I don't know, was a disciple of Jesus. He didn't consent with what's going on. He, he had heard Jesus tell him about the kingdom of God, that it's present in him, in him and in all who believe in him. He would have heard him say, the kingdom is not of this world. Joseph refused to consent to the actions of killing this innocent man. He would have understood that the kingdom begins in the heart of believers, this is why he wanted to do the right thing. This is why his heart, his heart was being made new. He was, he was confused, I think, but Christ was making him new. He did not want to see this happen. And if you're a believer, this is true of you. The kingdom of God has begun in the people of God. The world sees the kingdom of God through the people of God. So how we live, as we live holy lives set apart, as we follow Christ, the world is seeing the kingdom of God. 
We're able to show love. We're able to show mercy and compassion and forgiveness because we're children of the one true king. And then he gives us true rest from our work. We see at the end, Joseph takes Jesus. He lays him in the tomb. The women who had come with him from Galilee, verse 55, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and they prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested, according to the commandment. The women rested from their work. They didn't keep working on Jesus' body. They didn't try to revive him or try to fool the masses. They didn't rob the grave. They didn't try to create a false narrative. They stopped working. They didn't understand. But they trusted in the perfect plan of God. And they rested. Confused, heartbroken, but resting in the promises of God. Hear me this morning. Jesus' work on the cross is finished. It finished all the work of trying. You're trying to become righteous. You no longer have to strive for perfection. Jesus alone achieved it and gave it to you. You no longer have to beat yourself up for failure. Jesus paid it all. You can rest. You can enter into his rest and understand that he's pleased with you and he loves you and he is making you look like him. The point of this passage is not you need to die for your sins as Jesus did We can't do that. We can't cover our debt. We can't pay for it. The point is to understand that Jesus died for your sin. Past, present, future. You're truly, if you believe in Christ, truly set free. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Jesus chose not to save himself so that he could save us. If that does not change you, you don't understand it yet. Let's pray. Father, we don't understand completely the sacrifice that you gave for us. We believe it. We believe in the blood of Christ covering our sin. We believe in the resurrection. Praise God, we get to see the resurrection. You didn't stay dead, but you defeated death. But Father, we need as a people to remember who we are. We remember the power of the cross. Help us, help my brothers and sisters to remember they are loved, forgiven, adopted, people of the kingdom. We don't need acceptance of the world. We have your acceptance. And we thank you, Lord. I pray, Father, if there's one person in here that doesn't, that walked in here, an unbeliever, that they would find me, find someone, and 
and turn to you. Save them, Lord. In your precious name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Hauser Community Church Online. Check back next week for the next unpacking of the Word of God. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about the message or for pastor at area code 541-756-2591 or email us at pray at hauserchurch.org. Again, that's P-R-A-Y at H-A-U-S-E-R-C-H-U-R-C-H dot O-R-G. Our address is 69411 Wildwood Road, North Bend, Oregon, 97459. Remember, if you're seeking the truth, it will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ.